Welcome to the Crexy Podcast, an insider's look at all things commercial real estate. I'm Giannis Papadakis, Business Development Manager at Crexy and today's host. Each episode, the Crexy team dives into a broad range of topics and conversations with featured experts to investigate trends, educate listeners, and understand the latest industry news in commercial real estate. As the nation's fastest growing online CRE platform, we're excited to provide a window into the inner workings of commercial real estate for this generation and the next. Welcome and thank you all for joining us for this episode of the Crexy Podcast, an insider's look at all things commercial real estate. In this show, we cover a broad range of topics that both cater to commercial real estate newcomers as well as industry leaders. I'm your host, Giannis Papadakis, Business Development Manager here at Crexy, and sharing the mic with me today as my co-host is Bob Drury, Senior Managing Director at Crexy. Welcome aboard to the podcast, Bob. Thanks, Giannis. Always a, a pleasure to join you on these. And today we are thrilled to be sitting down with Larry Cosmont and Brian Moncrief from Cosmont Realty. But before we dive in, a little bit about our guests. Larry is the president of Cosmont Realty. He is also the chairman and CEO of Cosmont Companies, an industry leader in public and private real estate transactions and economic development. Mr. Cosmont is also a principal of California Golden Fund, an approved EB-5 regional center. During Mr. Cosmont's distinguished 40-year career, he has worked with hundreds of local government agencies and private sector developers, landowners, and investors on real estate matters. His experience ranges from large-scale economic development programs to site-specific property acquisition, sale, and lease of land and developed projects, and ground lease transactions. As a broker, he has implemented transactions including undeveloped land, mixed use, industrial, office, retail, market rate, affordable housing, TOD sites, apartment projects, hotels, and specialized uses such as golf courses, storage, and incubators. Mr. Cosmont has served as city manager, director of community development, and redevelopment director in Santa Monica, Seal Beach, Bell Gardens, and Burbank. He also previously served as contract interim city administrator for Montebello, California. Now, Mr. Brian Moncrief is a Senior Managing Director with Cosmont Realty. He brings over 15 years of experience providing consulting and brokerage advisory services to many cities, counties, special districts, and private developer clients throughout California. Mr. Moncrief's ability to integrate public and private sector perspectives helps him achieve successful outcomes in pursuing economic and real estate development projects and programs. Mr. Moncrief currently provides advisory services to guide clients through the dissolution of redevelopment agencies, develop site-specific or large-scale strategies for the management, disposition, and development of public agencies agency real estate assets, and assist with preparing and implementing comprehensive economic development strategies. Wow, you guys are busy. We are. <laughs> Larry and Brian, welcome to the podcast. How are things? It's been a little while. I know we had to uh, push this a little bit from when we originally planned to record this, but it sounds like a lot has happened since, since the last time we planned to talk. What's been going on lately? Well, just real quick, if I if I could interject, sorry, Larry, to interrupt, but you know, Larry and I have known each other for like probably longer than we'd like to admit, <laughs> based on the gray hair on my face and his hair. You know, we, uh, you know, and, and we're we're really happy, Larry, that we have this strategic relationship between Larry and the Crexy platforms to to you know he's out trying to solve some some significant problems here in the state, uh, the affordable housing thing being one of them. 
And, um, you know, we're, I think between the combination of Crexy and the, the Cosmot platform, we're, we're, we're trying to leverage the best of both in order to kind of help contribute to solving some of these issues, which I, I think we're going to get to today. And so it's been a great, it's been great to reconnect with Larry and his whole team, you know, in the last year or so, Giannis and I have been, uh, you know, participating with them in, in some various things. And we're really looking forward to, you know, growing this partnership and, you know, seeing where it ends up. Yeah. Um, just to echo that, uh, if you ever want to feel like you've gone to Disneyland with Mickey Mouse, go to any kind of government convention with Larry because <laughs> you'll meet everyone. You really will. And uh, it just speaks to your experience in the space uh, and how well respected you are, what you do. So again, I uh, really appreciate you guys making the time to sit with us and do the podcast. Yeah. Thank you, Bob and Giannis. On behalf of Brian and myself, Cosmon Companies, Cosmon Realty, we have have a great relationship with Crexy. You provide such a valuable platform. We've just been privileged as a company to work for now 36, going on 37 years with hundreds and hundreds of public agencies. And the issues never stop in California. California is kind of the laboratory of life for the nation. As we, everyone peers in and tries to figure out how bad we're messing up or how well we might be doing. And there's lots of opinions on both sides of that equation. But as a firm that's been the leader in public-private transactions, it's just a robust environment for us. And we have really talented people like Brian and others who have spent their career, you know, not only on the fundamentals of economics and pro formas and real estate transactions, but the additional layer of government, government nuances, legislation, policy, community outreach, all of the things that we read about almost every day in the local section of the news, sometimes when it gets to corruption on the first page of the news, but it's just stuff that people are interested in. And as a result, we've had a really consistent team and we've been blessed with a great, you know, um, a cadre of clients who just stay with us over a period of time. So it's, it's been a great, uh, great experience for us over the years. To jump back to kind of your beginnings in this industry, uh, I'd love to hear a little bit about your career paths and some lessons learned along the way. Brian, why don't we start with you? How did you first get into commercial real estate? So I've, <clears throat> Giannis and Bob, great to be with you today. I really appreciate the time. I, you know, I've always been interested in real estate. It's, it's been in my blood. My dad spent his entire career working in the housing sector from the public sector side to advance and provide affordable housing opportunities in California communities like LA and Santa Monica. So I've been around it my entire life and had a really good sense of it before I started to work in the field. But, you know, I specifically got my start working in the private sector, advising communities on how to redevelop blighted areas that lacked necessary private investment, you know, and that was typically done through pooled property tax dollars and to provide affordable housing through a program called redevelopment, which had been in existence in California since 1945. So then shortly after my career started, that program was dissolved by Governor Brown in 2012, and this effectively shut down 400 plus redevelopment agencies across the state. So it, needless to say, it was an interesting time. You know, it's funny because Larry and I met during that time and you know, we were very aligned on our thinking about the business. And, you know, while the loss of redevelopment was a gut punch, it really forced cities to be in the real estate business and in the position of sellers, because thousands of public properties were now on the market thanks to redevelopment dissolution. 
And I think we both believed at the time that government agencies, municipalities could really use this moment as an opportunity to reinvent themselves, take a proactive approach to a less than desirable situation and leverage these public agency properties they were forced to sell to try to achieve their economic development, housing and real estate goals. And so, you know, through our knowledge as a firm on both the public and private sector, it really put us in the best position we thought to help them. And so that's how Larry and I kind of started to work together. What's interesting is that, you know, fast forward to today, in a lot of ways, public agencies are faced with similar circumstances to, to dispose of assets in a prescribed manner by the state. And we'll talk a lot about that um, throughout this podcast, but it's an interesting just 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 a position that they're in. Um, so, you know, I've been fortunate enough, I think, in my career, as you asked earlier, to really work with a lot of leading experts in the field of redevelopment, economic development and real estate. Um, so I'm happy to be here to have this conversation because I think it's timely. Appreciate that. And uh, Larry, how did you get your start in commercial real estate? You know, what drew you particularly to your current area of expertise? It's, it's an interesting and, and a bit unique route to commercial real estate. For me, I, I went to USC. I got a degree in public management. I focused on public finance and budgeting and, and economics. And um, when I started working first in the city of Santa Monica, I was just I was an administrative assistant to the city manager. Fast forward, I elevated through a couple of communities. And by the age of 26, I became city manager of a small city in southeast L.A. called Bell Gardens. And, uh, you know, Bell Gardens, which, which has to be very that has to be very young it, for that. position. It was young. Yeah. They ID'd me at the job interview for sure. Uh, but, you know, the, the reality <laughs> is that uh that was in 1978, so everybody can do the math, and you know, if not, I'll just send you the equation later. But the, uh, in that year, the world changed for government, and that's really, it's very, uh, I think, resonates with what we're going to talk about today, because Prop 13 started us all down the path of sort of tinkering with taxes and economic development and ultimately housing. That's how we got here. But for me in 78, the whole world of taxation change, Prop 13, made it impossible for a city or a county to balance its budget on the on the back of homeowners. That's the whole Jarvis movement is you just can't unilaterally tax my house to balance your government budget. Right. So in that time, I went and took an interview and most of the folks that typically would have been competitive had retired because it was such a dramatic change for a city to go from being able essentially to print tax money every year by approving their budget to having to be entrepreneurial and get into the business of fomenting and generating retail sales tax, hotel tax, and elevating communities through economic development. That's what opened the door for me. I stayed in local government through 1986, worked in four communities. I ended up running the director. I became the director of community development and ran the Burbank Redevelopment Agency. For a number of years and that was about the third 13th largest redevelopment agency in the state and that's where i learned real estate because we had literally dozens and dozens of transactions and it forced me to understand what the private sector's return requirements are so i could as a director of redevelopment fit the transaction into both the public policy perspective as well as the private sector return perspective when I look back, that was just an education you can't hardly get. You couldn't get it that time. 
Today, there are a number of programs in places like UCLA, USC, Syracuse that focus now on public-private real estate. In Burbank, we did literally billions of dollars of transactions in industrial housing, residential, uh, and retail. And that got me to thinking that there ought to be a business that uh, enables the private sector and the public sector to interact. And so I started Cosmont in 1986. And it was a tough time because I was a newcomer to the city side of consulting. So all of my clients were private sector clients, Costco, Cushman Realty, many more. Those were my initial clients. What a blessing to start with clients like that. Well, that, that's where we first met. If you recall, Larry, you know, Red Mountain, we used you to help with, uh, with this was a previous lifetime for me, but we used uh, Larry and his group to help us with some entitlement issues and, you know, zoning and stuff like that. Right. Um, in various, you know, cities. And and so just just to sort of finish the story, I learned that private sector side through my private sector clients. They had to share pro formas with me. We had to run them. We had to rerun them, solving for what we call the gap. You know, that's the public-private deal. Where does the public sector insert its money or its zoning or any other incentive, federal, state, or otherwise, to help a developer accomplish a return that produces a project that's beneficial to a community in their perspective. That's the business we're in. That's how I got there. Fantastic. Well, with that set up, let's jump into the weeds of today's topic, California's housing situation and how local governments and commercial real estate stakeholders are addressing the issue. To provide some context, we talked a little bit about Cosmont Realty and what it does. Let's talk a little bit about what work you're doing today in how it relates to California's housing situation um, and, and where are we? You know, there's a lot of stuff being thrown around in, you know, newspapers and news reports about California's housing crisis. What, what's actually happening on the ground? Yeah, it's a it's a broad topic, but just at the highest level, uh, I, the state woke up about three or four years ago and said, if we can't provide housing for most of California residents, we can't really exist as a state. I think that's the recognition. They have other sort of conclusions and uh, related to housing affordability and housing uh, accommodations for all ethnic and diversified uh, you know, community representatives. Okay, that's, but their primary conclusion is we're just short two and a half million or so uh, residential units. And if we can't provide those, we just won't be competitive as an economy. Based on that conclusion, the state's been moving down the road of a series with a series of statutes, literally in the dozens. And they really all center on one, providing a way for uh, private investors and developers to help local communities produce housing on an accelerated basis to meet that crisis, right? Basically, the state has created housing as a priority. It's, they call it an urgency matter. And based on that philosophy or policy of urgency, they've now evolved into a number of statutes that do a series of things. On the left, there are statutes that say, you need to report what you have and what you're going to produce over a period of time. Because we, we, we won't know how to solve this gap unless we keep track of you. And that's sort of the regional housing needs assessment column. And we'll talk about that some more. In the middle, they say, we're going to help you 
meet those regional housing needs assessment goals, which literally uh, are to produce several million housing units by 2030. And by the way, we're not going to come close. So it's a topic that we'll deal with later. So we're going we're gonna to identify and approve a series of statutes that provide density bonuses that enable developers to walk into a jurisdiction and sort of get through the local uh, zoning codes in an expedited way with limited interference, what they call sort of the vesting of applications on an expedited basis, even as related to CEQA. So column one is we need to see what you're doing. Column two is we're going to help you do what you need to do, which is to help us solve the, the housing and affordability crisis. And then number three, column three is other things that we can do to help you. And that's where the Surplus Land Act comes in. It's, sort of, it's, it's, a, it's kind of a corollary set of statutes that are meant to reinforce the availability and accelerate the availability of publicly owned land for affordable and for housing overall. So the point is, just to summarize, I'd like to you know, ask Brian if he had something additional to add. We're in a circumstance where the state understands it has to fulfill a major housing prescription. It is their conclusion that based on where cities are and what they've been producing locally for a variety of reasons, we'll never get there. So they've set up a series of objectives and guidelines and a series of statutes that compel cities to act on an expedited basis with limited local jurisdictional interference so that the state can get those housing units on the rolls. Yeah, Larry, I think you summed it up nicely. I think the, the, other, the other issue to think about is that housing elements are sort of the way that these agencies and cities comply, right? And so the other side of it is, yes, the state's granting you these tools, Yes, the state is sort of laying out a pathway for developers to get less interference at the local level. But if you don't comply with these various statutes, there are penalties. There are financial penalties. There are loss of control from a general plan standpoint, a permitting process standpoint. There's exposure that the state um, <clears throat> has given, you know, has put local agencies in front of if they don't end up complying um, and a developer comes to the table and says, I wanna build a certain number of units. And, and even if it doesn't comply with the local zoning or the general plan, they can still get that process, uh, that process going through a, a you know, preliminary application. So there are a lot of other things, but the state is also making sure that they're ramping up enforcement so that local jurisdictions comply with these various statutes. Now, we're going to jump into the Surplus Land Act. And before we do, can you explain in layperson's terms, what exactly is the Surplus Land Act? What does it do? And can you provide some context around how it was passed and why? Yeah. Uh, and so I'll start on that. And I think the, um, you know, again, uh, stepping back, uh, what you have in the world of housing and real estate in California today is an economy that actually likes housing, a demand level that supports the proliferation of housing, but you've got a disconnect between the cost and availability, cost of producing housing and the availability of land and local, uh, local procedures, including some state imposed procedures like CEQA, California Environmental Quality Act, 
All of this makes it really hard to develop housing, which is how we get into this, this circumstance. I'll get to Surplus Land Act in a minute because Surplus Land Act is just one of the policy mindsets and frameworks that's meant to help lubricate the system. All right. And the purpose of the Surplus Land Act is to make available for affordable housing any property that's owned by any public agency. This is not just about cities. It's not just about counties. It's about special districts, cities, counties, every kind of public agency has to now go through a process that exposes any property it's bought to a list of affordable housing developers that's published by the Housing and Community Development Department, HCD. You'll learn those initials. They're, they're the big three initials, HCD. And based on that and following a process that takes about 150 days to get through the exposure, a public agency must first, it's like saying, look, Public agencies have been buying land for years for lots of different reasons, to revitalize a downtown or to induce transit or to provide housing. And I call it the property garage. You know, city councils and city managers and directors of community developments, they change over years. And sometimes the corporate memory in a city isn't exactly clear as to why they bought a property because things change, priority change. What doesn't change is they've got a garage full of properties. Well, the state then declares housing as an urgency matter and it says, whoa, why don't we compel all public agencies that own land to first provide that as a resource for affordable housing and force them to expose those properties to that list of affordable housing developers before they lease or sell the property. And so all of a sudden cities wake up one morning and they need a garage sale permit to sell their properties. <laughs> I got a comment here too. I think I had no idea how complicated this all was. And, and I think Giannis and I have both learned a ton yeah. in the last, you know, six, eight months, year that we've been when kind of working and hanging out with you guys. And and it seems to me like the the there's there's the state and then the cities and the counties and and none of them are really communicating with each other and none of them really like to be told what to do because they like to do their own thing. And and this is way more complicated than just going and saying, hey, we're going to build some affordable housing over here, right? It just, which seems to be the right thing to do, but it, you know, just seems really complicated. It's complicated. It's an overlay of uh, of process that, you know, many cities find uh, repugnant candidly because they bought that property fair and square in the first place. And they just think that it's an asset they ought to be able to put in place at their own discretion. Again, you know, it, I'm not here, and I think Brian and, here, and I are not really here to sort of take sides on the policy basis. I mean, those are endless arguments of local control versus state control. We are here, and in a partnership with Crexy on, on the Surplus Land Act, because despite what those philosophical issues are, despite what those philosophical differences are, the law is in place. The development right. community, all of the developers, all of the brokers that use Crexy, really need to understand the backdrop of housing policy and land use policy sufficiently so that they can really understand and implement for their clients. I mean, there is not a residential transaction in California that isn't going to be touched by some statutory imperative over the next 10 years. This is just one of them. And I, before I turn it over to Brian, I say it's worth, uh, and we'll do it in a minute, delving into the details 
of how that exposure of affordable of, of public owned land works because there's a short process brian will go through it at the end of the day here is what we've concluded surplus land act is not going away in fact we're going to see more and more legislation tightening up the process because this is a new world. The states never said, hey, Bob, hey, Giannis, let me look around your garage and tell you what you can sell and how. They've never said that. <laughs> they are saying it now. And so that creates yeah. some challenges. But here's the amazing thing. It also creates some opportunities, we think. So, Brian, do you want to take them through sort of step one, two, yeah. three, the act so everyone can get on a baseline and then we can come back and talk about what does it mean if you're a broker or a developer and, you know, can you access this property? What else should you be thinking about? How are cities doing? Are they complying? What's yet to come? Those are the things that I think worthwhile discussing. Yeah, I think that's great. Uh, listen, you know, taking a step back that the SLA or the Surplus Land Act isn't new. It's been around since 1968, but most recently, and that's January of 2020, it was modified with a distinct focus on producing affordable housing in the state of California in, in sort of, you know, compliance with all of these uh, statutes that have been released. The act, you know, while Larry laid it out very nicely, it bears repeating, stipulates that every public agency owned property, cities, counties, school districts, and other special districts before they sell or lease property have to go through a prescribed process of first offering that property to affordable housing developers, which is a list that HCD, Larry mentioned, maintains, and other specific statutorily required public agencies. It could be parks and rec district for open space purposes or school districts for school facilities. All of these folks need to be noticed for a period of 60 days for them to respond that they have, you know, interest in a particular piece of property that a city or a special district or a public agency in general. How, how do you get on out. that list? How do you get on that developer list? Curious. So you can notify the state HCD of your interest in learning about all of these notices that go out periodically for these surplus land assets. Okay. Once you get on that list, you're, you're basically in, in the party. And okay. every time a notice goes out, you are statutorily required to send this notice to everyone that HCD has on that list. And right now, that list has grown to probably 800 plus affordable housing developers or interested parties that want to receive these notices. Got it. Um, okay. Eight, I should also mention that the state is compiling this information, putting it on a map, as well as you know creating a database online for folks to access fairly easily. Right. Yeah. By the way, we're we're in a report card world, right? In other words, what HCD has done is not only are they listing all the public agencies that are required to adopt a housing element with identifying each and every category of affordable housing and market rate housing that they have to produce by 2029, because we're in the 2021 through 2029 RENA phase. I think it's called the sixth cycle. Uh, I know that you didn't wake up this morning thinking you were in the sixth cycle. You are. We all are. And the, the reality is that this sixth cycle is meant to induce over 2 million housing units in California in four categories, very low, low, moderate, and then market. Okay. We could define those later. 
but they're basically percentages of uh, housing costs as related to uh, income uh, uh, as compared to the average median income in any county. So a low affordable housing unit or very low might be 40, 50% of the average median income and market rate, of course, could be 100% or more. So that gives you a sense and they get bracketed in between. But we, we wake up in the sixth cycle and part of getting to the sixth cycle is trying, is the state having to take a shot at making as many sites available in addition to the sites that can be found on the open marketplace. Bob asked a great question. So how do you get on the list? It's, it's worth getting on the list. You just go to HCD. The other thing you can do, as you know, when we created this platform on Crexy, is you can go on the Crexy Surplus Land Act platform and see what's available. As we, as we put more and more sites there onto the Crexy Surplus Land Act platform, all of the users of Crexy will be able to see sort of who's looking at the site, what's eligible, what can they do, what's the time frame for making a bid, and so on. The point is, is the world has changed, and it's very transparent. There are no secrets, in my view, when it comes to the Surplus Land Act. Except nobody understands it completely. Other than that, you know, that's correct. No yeah. Well, and that's the reason for this. We, we really want to, you know, yeah. we want to shed some light on this because at some level, it's complicated. At some level, it's pretty simple. It's just really about the state really managing as much as they can to the dismay, I would say, to many local leaders, uh, of many local leaders, managing a process to get as many sites deliver, uh, developable or developed as a housing sites in California. And speaking of housing sites in California, what opportunities await those seeking to get involved in the multifamily space, right? This is a big change, but there's definitely a lot of opportunity happening simultaneously. How are current operators finding these new opportunities, new assets, and capitalizing on these regulatory changes? Yeah, it's a great question. Brian, I'm going to pose some of this to you, but let me just say this. If you woke up in, let's say, 19, in 2005, and you decided you wanted to find a residential site, you'd probably call a broker at CBRE or JLL or wherever and say, I'm looking to develop 50, 100 units and you'd scour the landscape. I think that's different. When you wake up in 2022 and 2023, where you really want to go is to the housing element of these cities and say, where has these cities, where have these cities placed the density that's been required of them to produce through their regional housing needs assessment where in the housing element is that density going to go? To me, that's your first step. The second step is what public agency lands are available because now they have to make it available for housing. So what's out there? Because that may be a very good source of less costly land. Public sector land, while it has to trade at fair market value under the Surplus Land Act, just tends to be a little bit more cost effective than privately held land over, over, the, over the long haul. So you wake up today and you say, okay, you know, I can call XYZ broker, but I can also check these housing elements and see where the density is going. And then I can see what the requirement is of this community. Is it, if a community has 2000 housing units, it has to produce by 2029. We're already in 2023, six years is a nanosecond in development time. So basically, how many are very low? 
how many are low, how many are moderate, how many are market. And then you match that sort of reservoir that gets identified for you. It's a free look. It's out there. It's a public document. Then it gets the, then the equation gets a little bit more complicated. I'm going to turn it over to Brian because then you want to look at how do you apply the Surplus Land Act and how do you apply some of the density bonus provisions? And Brian, you may want to talk about a little bit about SB 35 and SB 330 at the high level and come back. And because I think this is on the mind of every developer and you're starting to see, you're starting to see articles with phrases like builder's remedy, you know, uh, developers imposing 250 units on a community that wants zero. And then the article, you know, I almost can write the article. Half, half the article are folks saying, this is unfair because we don't, we ought to dictate how much density we get. And the developer is saying, I've been doing this project for seven years and I still don't have a permit. And I say this without any bias because I'm not trying to pick a side, right? We have hundreds of public agency clients. But that dialogue and all those articles is exactly why we're here, because we can't agree on how to get housing done. So the opportunity in shopping, Brian, is sort of dictated by these statutes. You want to talk about some of those? Well, yeah, I think, you know, you said it best when you think about a city like L.A. that's got almost 500,000 units that they need to produce within that nine year period in, in all of those various categories that Larry laid out. It's it's gonna be it's gonna be tough, and you're seeing it come out in articles, and you know you know Mayor Bass is trying to um, tackle that issue head on. But these housing elements for those localities that do not have an adopted housing element in substantial compliance with state law really opens the floodgates. Developers may propose eligible housing projects that may not necessarily comport with local zoning or the general plan. And so cities like Santa Monica are faced with this. You're seeing it happen in San Francisco and other communities across the state that are faced with these issues of more density. Larry mentioned this density bonus, less parking requirements and loss of local control. And so the convergence of all that has made it really difficult for cities, but also presents specific opportunities for developers to get involved, particularly housing developers, affordable at that to really see where cities are starting to stack density in their communities and how you can leverage a lot of these statutes to help advance your project in a permitting process that, you know, right today, maybe it hasn't been accelerated because of all the, uh, of all the issues that, you know, developers face. Now, zooming out a bit, there are many elements of what California is doing that may eventually play out on a national stage. Can you give us some context or examples of other markets facing housing issues and where things are trending? Yeah, I'll start. You know, the, California is clearly the laboratory, I think, for fulfilling a prescription of housing availability far ahead of where the nation is, but not in terms of the need. I mean, in nationwide, you'll see articles that basically say 3.84 million unit shortage nationwide. I mean, this is facing many, many states where you have younger households who are sort of at the edge of affordability uh, and, and you have housing costs that have escalated, some of it COVID related, some of it just cost related. And you have zoning squabbles all over the place. It's just not California. California, we just perfected the argument here, but everyone's working on doing the same thing in other states. So the confluence of cost, 
uh, lack of reliability on getting zoning and high demand and just a shortage of product, you know, makes this a national issue. It's so ironic to me that, you know, California is not only the leader in this issue because we're we're sort of far down the road or getting further down the road and figuring out how to tinker with the supply demand formula, but it's a formula that has to be tinkered with in other states. So not going away, I think as a nation, the same underlying conclusions that Gavin Newsom has come to in the state legislature that without a housing pool for most workers, you don't really have an economy that can thrive. And so a lot of states, the entire country is facing this. Now, back though to where we are in California, what you're seeing in California may be a prescription that other states want to follow. I mean, there, as far as we know, there is no state that's basically said, what's in your housing wallet? Okay, right now, basically in California, you have to, and, and, HUD, and HCD is doing it for you. You and I went right online, went to hcd.org. We would find a list of all these communities discloses what they have to produce. That's why I say the game has changed here. I mean, if you're an acquisition and development professional, I mean, that's where you start. You know, you can find out where, where right. the demand is based on the requirement. The next thing that happens, and I think that the rest of the, ca- the rest of the country is going to look at is, okay, well, if you tell everyone what you need, and there's still that friction about getting it approved, how do you change the rules of that game? California is well down the road on that. That's where we get to density bonuses, CEQAs, California Environmental Quality Act expedites, lack of challengeability on, on, on various uh, projects, a requirement that a local community can no longer make up rules in the middle of an application process, but in fact has to sort of basically uh, provide a developer based on SB 3035 and 330, a set set of guidelines that are objective that can't be changed in the middle of the game or can't be adjusted to induce a delay. So that's where California is ahead of the race, in my view, is that they are already at the part of the game where they have a marshal and the marshal is watching how the process is going. Brian, you want to add to that? Yeah, just to reiterate, I mean, I think, you know, we're, we're involved with, um, ICSC and other professional organizations, but we were just at a leadership conference dealing with sort of what they're calling community advancement, but is really just public-private partnerships. We sat, we sit on this committee with leaders from across the state who are all dealing with aging shopping centers that are looking to be repositioned and redeveloped. And a component of that is housing. And so we're hearing folks across the country sitting at this roundtable having these discussions about, hey, our state is now trying to employ certain things that California has employed over the last couple of years to be able to figure out how to redevelop these these aging commercial centers and and what are we doing and how are communities dealing with all of these new statutes that are coming. So they're looking to California and they're looking uh, at professionals like us to show them kind of, hey, this is the landscape, this is what we're doing, this is what we're hearing, and this is how we're dealing with it and, and advising our clients, public and private, to kind of work through it. I'm curious because, you know, I get the good fortune of being able to sit with people much more experienced than me that have seen a lot of different markets change over time as well. Um, what 
if you had a crystal ball, what do you see coming down the pipe in terms of your overall predictions of the multifamily space, given the seriousness of the housing needs in a growing number of markets? Um, I know I've heard a lot of theorization that we are leaning more and, and marching more towards the corporate landlord um, being kind of the ubiquitous owner and kind of washing out the mom and pop owners from the multifamily space. W what do you see coming? You know, that's that's a possibility. I'm not sure I, I share that conclusion. So, you know, we talked about the first step was home. We're going to make you do your homework and you have to disclose your goals. And the second step was we're going to provide ways for uh, communities to be compelled to produce dense, more dense housing through a series of statutes. So I want to make one point before I go further, and that is the cities that we serve many of them are really interested in providing housing. And it's a very tough dialogue locally because I'm a former city manager. I can tell you that quality of life, congestion, crime, density, these are issues that local electeds were voted in to protect and advance in the eyes and in the preferences of the communities that voted them in. So, you know, when the state comes along and takes a broad swath and says, okay, you need a garage sale for the property you own. You need a garage sale permit. If you think you have zoning, eh, not really anymore. You've got a lot of state zoning you have to contend with. You know, these are, you can understand where cities are recoiling and saying, okay, well, but wait a second, what happened to local control? What happened to the ability for communities to determine their future? Now, the flip side, going back on the other end, is that out of 538 California cities and counties, 29 out of 538 will meet their housing goals by, you know, so based on the current report cards. I mean, that's 5%. So, you know, in between sort of the, uh, the discussion about uh, managing the quality of life in a community versus engaging an economy for the state that has ample housing for workers somewhere in between has to lie a solution. And in reality, where we are at this stage of the game is the solution is being meted out by a series of statutes that are sort of taking it on, taking the issue on whether or not local government would like it or not. That's where we are. That's so part of our discussion is wait for the next phase. And the next phase is now. You are starting to see, as of last year, a series of statutes that wholesale change retail zoning into residential, maybe 2011, or that take out parking requirements for sites adjacent to huge. adjacent to transit on a 15-minute corridor. 15 minutes, like if you see a bus every 15 minutes, that's a transit corridor. So no parking. Essentially, if you provide 20% or more of affordable housing on a retail corridor, that retail corridor can now be residential. So what I'm saying is, is that first the report card, then the density bonus, now the corridor shift. I call retail zoning the Great California Disappearing Act because in California, where the statutes are going is they're basically saying, hey, retail, that's what you thought. Now it's residential. So the, the whole point of this is really so Larry, historically, historically, right? The cities, counties, etc. They were all great. We need retail. We need hotels. We need because of tax revenue, yeah. right? 
and they didn't necessarily care about all of those things you were just talking about necessarily quality of life for the residents and and you got to have five to one parking and the drive throughs got to have you know so much of this in order to be compliant and, and i think a lot of that just in the last couple of years covid may have helped with some of that has changed some of the dynamics of how some of our leaders are thinking about some of those rules and the zoning and that sort of thing right and what's more important the tax revenue obviously is but it used to be paramount well we need seven walmarts and we need seven targets yeah. and we need yeah. you know and we need 50 you know marriott courtyard hotels yeah. in town and then we'll be fine right and i think that's the dynamics there i've seen change seems like in the last three years Quite a bit. I mean, all the dynamics, uh, they're not just policy driven, right? I mean, the in a way, Prop 13, I started out by saying, changed the equation for balancing local government uh, budgets and moved it to a more entrepreneurial mindset. So for starting in 1978 or 79, for the next 25 years, we chased retail as the way to sort of underwrite local services through sales tax. Okay, that generated two things a whole boatload of retail and some congestion and not a ton of housing, obviously. There was a lot of housing built, but not, not enough. Fast forward, though, the next shift hasn't been policy driven. I mean, we woke up one day and decided that we can buy things online and don't have to go to a store. And then we woke up one day and said it's dangerous to go out because we'll all get infected. And so between those two trends, the whole issue, the whole equation of retail viability got shifted again away from perhaps the retail store at the levels that we've been in, in this country. If you compare our retail ratios to population, we're far in excess of the rest of the world by a long shot. We are way over retail in this country, but especially in a post-COVID digital world. So Brian, you right. know, what are you finding? I mean, how are cities really dealing with this, you know, deficiency in sales tax and the pressure to put housing? Because you're, you're boots on the ground here. Yeah, it's a, de it's a delicate balance, right? I think, you know, we've had circumstances of projects that we've worked on. And, you know, we like to say we're in the education business because every, you know, Tuesday night in the state of California, we're having these discussions with communities in closed sessions or open sessions, trying to, to tell them where the market is going and where those shifts are going and how that impacts, you know, a 13 acre piece of property that, you know, back in the day was entitled for a big box, you know, Best Buy store, but is now turned into, you know, a mixed use project. And, and the components of that today are, you know, 250 residential units, uh, a hotel, uh, 18,000 square feet of retail and medical office. That's today's mixed use. And so cities are still, you know, have to have to work through the mechanics of what the state is pressuring them to do from the housing side while also, you know, having to understand that some residential, <clears throat> while it may create a lot of the challenges that Larry expressed, is accretive to the retail that is out there and is successful and is doing well. Um, you know, and you're also seeing synergies between the various land uses, whether it be hotel or office or residential or some of the, you know, the, the typical retail that's more sort of entertainment based uh, working together to create, you know, what is now a mixed use community or a 15 community, 15 minute community, like we like to tell our clients, because you're seeing it in downtowns, you're seeing the retail or the mom and pops not doing as well as they once were. And so we work through, you know, these challenges coming up with downtown revitalization studies or 
large scale or small scale economic development strategies using a lot of tools, whether it be special financing districts to provide infrastructure for communities or real estate strategies to figure out, okay, we've got to contend with this surplus land act. How do we still do it in a way while you're getting compliance, it achieves your own specific economic development goals and objectives. So it's a confluence of all these things that we have to contend with to help, you know, help our clients, you know, primarily cities, but also the private sector, one, understand, and two, uh, get through while trying to achieve the state's aims. So it sounds like, and correct me if I'm wrong, that not only is it an incredibly complex um series of things you have to track, but that it's constantly shifting over time too, um, making it very hard for the layperson to maybe at sometimes jump into the stream and understand what's happening. Um, how do you stay on top of all of it? Yeah. So we have just, you know, at our company, no one can sleep anymore. We just have to read statutes. Uh, and, and that's why, you know, Brian seems a little blurry at times and I seem a little bleary. You know, the, the reality is it's, it's an evolving uh, landscape. And I think what we are encouraging the real estate investment and uh, local government community is to take it step by step and, and we have to create forums where information can be made available i, I think hcd frankly is doing a the, their statutorily required job of getting information out on a transparent basis but it's very technical if you look at these excel spreadsheets sure they tell you the number of units when they have to be delivered by but that doesn't give you the contextual story locally right and then when it comes to the surplus land act yeah you know if a property gets listed and we throw it on Crexy and we, you know, and, and you have uh, 60 days as an affordable housing developer to submit your application, or if you're a market rate developer, you want to watch the process, understanding the basics, one, which is let that 60 days float out there. The city still has to, or county or district still has to sell the land at, at a fair market value to the extent that they don't either get interest or to the extent that they can't get to a resolved deal, now you have an opportunity that's actually been vetted. And the interesting thing about that, I'm trying to show the upside. So the, the thing about that is it's been vetted and really the only restriction is if you put 10 or more housing units ultimately on that site that's gone through the SLA, then 15% of those residential units has to be affordable across a number of categories like low and very low and moderate. So it's not, right. you know, I think it's not a it's not a comfortable process because it's new, but it's definitely uh, one that is achievable and understandable. That process alone is a uh, I think is a platform of opportunity that if you just sort of stay away from the complexity of all of this and say, well, let me just drill down on the Surplus Land Act, which is why Crexy and Cosmo put together that platform, because if you take all the noise out of the system, you say, okay, here's what I understand. City, county, public agency can't sell property without first exposing it. That just tells me what? That the property is available. Tell me when you as a private sector broker, Bob, really knew when a government agency property was coming up. Yeah, it'd be impossible. Now they tell yeah. you, right? Now you can go to Crexy and you can see it. Okay, that's step number one. Step number two, it's 60 days. I can tell you as a broker, I've spent 120 days just getting a listing. So, you know, 
So 60 days is not a terrible place to be to say, okay, now it's available. I get that it was available for affordable housing. I won't make, you know, if I'm a developer, I say I have no opinion on that. But in the case, it just gets to appear at the end of the 60 days. Now I have a shot at that. And now it's been defined. Part two. Part three, once it's defined, guess what? And this is to the bane of some local government leaders. I could probably not only get into a deal, but I could probably get some density that I've never gotten before because, because of the RENA requirement and the allowances and the statutes that let me get there. So it's pretty simple. Availability, transparency, and the ability to execute once that transparent process has gone through. I think that's the upside. That's for the private sector. If you give me one more minute, the public sector upside is a little different and it's a little bit more begrudging on the public sector side. I'm a former city manager. I understand the fact that I need a state garage permit really would irk any local government. Hey, at the end of the day, though, the need for that permit forces cities and counties and special districts to take an inventory of everything they've bought and to figure out how to best get those properties through the Surplus Land Act and then make them available for the purpose that they want, whether it's affordable housing, mixed income, retail, mixed-use transit. It gets you to think about as an asset manager and makes the public agency an asset manager and say, whoa, you know what? We have that? Oh, I didn't know we had that. Let's think about how could we use that? Could we use that for arena? Could we use that to help our downtown? Let's get it through the SLA and get it to work. So, you know, it's like anything else in life. There's good, there's bad, there's indifferent. That's the process we face here. Yeah. I was just going to say, Giannis, sorry that, you know, to Larry's point on transparency, right? At the end of the day, cities can decide to go through this process or not, the Surplus Land Act. If they want to sell property or lease property, they have to go through it unless they meet an exemption. But those exemptions are very limited and are almost always, you know, you can't thread that needle. But here's the thing about why we, we decided to work with you guys on this platform is because Crexy was the perfect opportunity for cities to go through the process online, streamlined, and it also catalogs everything you're doing. Because at, at the end of this process, whether you got interest letters from folks or not during that 60 day period that Larry laid out, What's going to happen is you have to go back to HCD and tell them the story. How did you go through the process? Who looked at the property? How many folks did you send it to? Who did you send it to? And documenting all that on the Crexy platform is so much easier than, than doing it the traditional way, right? So it just made it really easy for us and for clients to go through that process, comply, but also, even if you get through the compliance process, you're ready to go to the broader marketplace if you wanted to, to expose the opportunity. So it's, it's just, it makes it very easy and, and, a, and a streamlined approach for us to help facilitate that for our clients. Yeah, that's good stuff. That's great. Appreciate that. Yeah. And, you know, it's been a, really a pleasure working alongside both of you and learning, you know, more about this process. And I continue to learn. And if you're listening and you want to learn more, I know an expert that's been doing it for 40 years. <laughs> His name is Larry Cosmont, and you need to get in touch with him first um, because you don't have to reinvent the wheel. You know, somebody that's, you know, been on top of this and it stays on top of it. 
um, can be a resource for you. So uh, Larry, Brian, I want to thank both of you so much for joining us and sharing your insights. I know yes. you're both very busy and we appreciate you spending time to sit down with us. Uh, where can people find you online if they want to get in touch, email, social media? What's the best way to get in touch? So Cosmont.com, K-O-S-M-O-N-T.com. And uh, you can also uh, email lcosmont at Cosmont.com, B Moncrief, M-O-N-C-R-E-I-F at Cosmont.com. We are also, uh, Giannis and Bob, you know, we now have this Crexy platform. I think, you know, we have a Q&A, a question and answer facility on that platform that kind of goes through more of the technicalities. I think your your clients and customers should take a look at that. Uh, we also, uh, if you like, at some point, we can make some of the simple PowerPoints that we have available on that platform. I know you're in that education business along with us and because education leads to opportunities. So we very much appreciate this uh, this uh, alignment and partnership with Crexy, I think the business needs it. If uh, if I go to a cocktail party and say, "Have you SLA today?" I might get thrown out. So you know, we're gonna have to, we're gonna have to change that perspective over time in our real estate community. And you guys are at the forefront of doing that with us. Well, we gave you some Crexy hats to wear, right? When you go to those cocktail yeah. parties, right? Didn't, didn't we give you some hats to wear? We have them. We, we definitely have them. You know, just uh, the social media front, you know, we have our marketing director pushing out a lot of stuff on Twitter at Cosmont Tweets, K-O-S-M-O-N-T Tweets at Cosmont Realty, um, LinkedIn, as well as Instagram. So you can find us on all those platforms as well. And I encourage you to connect with them if this topic or topics like this interest you. Um, it's going to keep changing. Information is going to you know keep coming up week by week, month by month. Make sure that you're tapped into you know some expert information lines, and, and Cosmon certainly is that. So, gentlemen, thank you so much. Thanks everyone for tuning in. If you enjoyed this episode, be sure not to miss the next one. Visit go.crexy.com/podcast. That's go.crexi.com forward slash podcast and sign up to get the very next episode delivered straight to your inbox. You can also subscribe to the Crexi podcast on your favorite podcast app or check out our YouTube channel at www.youtube.com slash Crexi for video recordings of each episode. Goodbye, stay well, we'll see you next time.